This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The lawyers for Marco Muzo are arguing that the Nivelle Lake family that lost three children and their grandfather in that horrific uh, accident uh, should not be entitled to more than a third of the damages they are seeking in a $25 million lawsuit. What does that mean? How is all of this determined? Uh, Jeffrey Reed is with his Hamilton attorney and on the line with us now. Hello, Jeffrey. How are you today? I'm fine. Scott, how are you doing? You staying warm? I'm trying to, uh, but I, I hear by Thursday it won't matter. We'll all be in shorts anyway. It seems that way. <laughs> Meantime, you've got a few hot topics to keep things warmed up. That's very, very true. Uh, let me start with this, Jer- uh, Jeffrey. How how do you determine how much is is adequate in these cases? Okay, I'm, I'm going to uh, answer you. I just want you to understand that uh, my area of practice is criminal law. I don't practice... Uh, things that are outside criminal law, but I do have a you know, reasonable understanding of these things. And I think the most important thing is to understand that uh, in a civil case where you're claiming that some wrong was done to you and you're looking for some kind of uh, compensation, the, the typical compensation, not the only kind, but for, for our purposes, is going to be measured in, in money terms. If we reduce it down to money the best we can. When you're dealing with property, something got stolen, lost, destroyed, damaged, it's pretty easy because property you can put a value on. When we get to human lives, whether it's personal injury or death, well, it becomes a lot harder, as, as you can understand. And yet, and yet, that's the measure we try to do it. So, um, so it, it is difficult. The, uh, when it comes to uh, measuring it, the uh, courts will uh, say, well, okay, if, if the person is liable, in other words, they're responsible, so now we just have to figure out the, the question of, uh, of damage, like what's it worth to compensate the, uh, the harmed party, the, the, the plaintiff. They'll look at a couple of things. So, um, the first thing they'll, they'll ask about is, well, let's just put aside, first of all, what are called special damages. That's when they're looking at the out-of-pocket costs, the expenses that are associated with it. So for a person might say, I had to get a special vehicle to drive because I couldn't drive my own, or I had to get nurses or special care or medicine or ther- therapy, any number of things. So we put that aside, special expenses and damages. Then you get to the sort of general damages. Those are the things where you get paid a compensation figure for pain and suffering, and there's also another, uh, uh, and the civil guys who probably uh, know more about this than I'll ever know or, uh, will may be able to correct the, the, the technical side of it, but, but in fact there's also another error, subject of damages, which is to deal with the uh, loss of future income. So those tend to be fairly big numbers, especially the possible loss of future income. And then last of all, as you can see in the Museo case, there's this question of, uh, of like punitive damages, which is, Unusual, but it can be done, where, where the courts look and say, I know it's a civil case, but there's some conduct here that is so outrageous that it deserves some uh, sanction, some denunciation, and we're going we're gonna to represent that by a further amount of money we call punitive damages. For example, if an insurance company was dealing with their own client, and they were dealing in bad faith, we'll make that up, and, and the court says, you know why you were dealing in bad faith, you should have been dealing with this guy properly. So not only do you have to pay up whatever you had to pay up, but we're going to put an extra measure of, of damages in just to show that the court frowns on this and maybe the next guy won't treat, uh, do the same thing. So, so those are all the areas. The problem, of course, is how you, how you put a number on something that amounts to pain and suffering. So if you uh, uh, lose, say, a finger, uh, it hurts and so forth. But uh, like, how do you measure that? And if I can illustrate that, uh, am I talking too much? I'm, I'm hoping I'm... No, go ahead. Okay. Keep going. You're fine. You're fine. Uh, if, if I can illustrate that with an area that's a little closer to what I do, um, and, and that's occasionally uh, we see cases reported um, and which are proven to be so of wrongful conviction, where a person has been uh, prosecuted 
found guilty, convicted, sentenced to jail, sometimes 5, 10, 15, 20, even more years. You see the David Milgard cases, you see the Jean-Guy Morin cases, and they spend a lot of time in a harsh environment with no liberty and, and all of the terrible things that are associated with that. And then later on it says, well, uh, we made a mistake. So then they say, well, I'm suing now for compensation. Well, how do you put a number on, a, on, on the life of somebody and their time? So likewise, it's with other things. We, we, ha- we have to somehow measure it. And the courts have a lot of experience with these cases for as, as time goes along in many, many cases. And, and they come to certain numbers which they know are appropriate for uh, pain and suffering. And, and, but the big number that often exists is the one for uh, loss of future income. So some years ago, and I'm talking about many years ago, the civil guys will probably laugh when they listen to me saying this, but at one point there was a, 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 a case or a series of cases in the Supreme Court of Canada where they sort of capped the, uh, the, the pain and suffering damages at about 100000 Now, that's probably inflated by inflation now, but it's, it's not really big. Like in the U.S. numbers, you hear monster numbers, and we don't live in that world. Ours is different. When you get to uh, loss of future income, it can be different. And illustrate that point by this. You're a concert pianist. You're at the height of your very career. You're making all kinds of concert tours. You've got a big income, and then you lose a hand. Well, what's that worth? Well, your loss of future income is probably uh, uh, huge. On the other hand, if you're uh, uh, an elderly fellow who's uh, you know, maybe uh, unable to do anything or whatever, mm. then your loss of income will be almost negligible. And so you'll get nothing on that account. It may be pain and suffering, but not at that account. So, so that's the context. They, this, you kind of try to distill this down to a number, but it's really hard to distill personal suffering, pain and suffering and, and loss uh, to a number, and yet that's what the courts have to try and do. Uh, the fact that Muzo is serving time in jail right now, how does that affect this? Well, um, because he can still be sued. So, so they're two different. You know, our criminal our justice system looks at public offenses and they look at private offenses. So, uh, or I wouldn't call them offenses because they're known as torts. But so, so um, a guy who steals your car can be prosecuted for theft. It's a public offense. It's an offense against the public. You might be the victim, but it's an offense against the public, and it's a public prosecution in a criminal court that has a penalty, and that fellow, say, goes to jail for a month or six months, whatever. But the fact is, you also lost your car, and your car got damaged, and, and, you, and, you, and, you, have, uh, and you lost your job because you didn't have your car, and whatever. So these are private losses. You bring a civil suit in the civil courts. It's a private case between you and the, and the thief. And, and, and so just because a fellow's in jail doesn't mean that he can't be sued. He's, 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 uh, that's, that's not a problem. Where it comes in in this case, though, if I could just focus it just a wee bit, the story I read was that um, the, the, the defendants, uh, him personally and, and the company, are saying, look, we're admitting liability, as I, as I saw it reported, meaning we know we're responsible, we're going to have to pay. It's a question of the, the number, and part of the number that uh, apparently is being claimed is what I called, remember I told you about the exemplary or punitive damages? Mm-hmm. Which is, this is such an outrageous thing. The court's got to denounce this. Even though it's a private case, it's still got to do that. Well, they're sort of saying, well, hold on now. You know, that function has all been fully discharged because this is a case. Not all cases are like this, but this is a case where there was actually a prosecution that was successful and a, right. and a very heavy penalty, 10 years in jail. So that, that, that uh, public element, even on a private case, they're going to argue has been satisfied. So there'll be, there'll be argument over that. So is this about how much time uh, the person will be serving or, or the length of a sentence, or is it about the loss of the family? Um, I, it's more about the loss of the family. The, the, the amount of time he's served, he's got a sentence, as I understood the, uh, 
uh, it was a 10-year sentence. Yeah. I mean, even allowing for early release, and he's going to do a lot of time in jail. Uh, the thing is that uh, the family is saying, well, you know, we've suffered these losses. But, 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 but they're also saying that, look, what happened here is so outrageous is, uh, that, that it requires public denunciation. And that's when you get that interplay between, well, uh, if there had been no public denunciation, it might be one thing. But uh, in a case where he's saying that I already got punished and, and, and quite severely, uh, so that element uh, of your case really is satisfied. And we really shouldn't be paying on account of that. There's other things we should pay for, like the things I talked about, the pain and suffering, loss yeah. of family, uh, loss of life, but, but not that. So uh, what about uh, the profile of this case and obviously the emotion behind it? Uh, Do you think that this is above average amount of money for this situation for 25 million? (laughs) That's when I'm going to have to, uh, I I hate to let you down a little bit, but this is when the civil guys are going to have to step up because I really don't know what the tariffs uh, are for these sorts of things. I use the tariff in the sense of meaning like what are customary uh, and and there are these uh, so-called tariffs, like you know, uh, and and you can plug in the parameters. You can say like a 25-year-old guy who uh, works as a truck driver and loses uh, right. the end of his left finger. Like and and trust me, they've got lots and lots and lots of cases. They can say, well, that's uh, that, that's uh, like a a, a $22,000 uh, figure right. or whatever. But for this, I I I see I'm way out of my league. Um, I I it sounds like a very high number to me. Um, and don't forget too, when people bring cases in civil courts, um, they often the, the statement of claim often bears little resemblance to the actual uh, results that could occur, even where it's successful. So you'll, you'll see very, very big numbers claimed. Unlike the states where they seem to get them, our our court system is much more conservative than that. So although you can claim for a very high amount. You may, in reality, even if you justify your claim and you're successful, wind up with a very different looking and smaller number than that. But so I really don't know. I, I see the claim of 25 million. It strikes me as a a monster number. But uh, that's not to say that there this isn't the mo- just a horrendous uh, yeah. case and such a terrible, terrible loss for those victims. But but again, we got to come back to you. You put monetary values on things. So how come the business is sued? If it, oh, well, I, I, I'm cutting off. Sorry, sorry, Scott. Uh, but I, that's because um, liability will be found in a motor vehicle case for the person who's uh, not only you know on the spot doing the driving, but but also for the registered owner. Right. Okay. So so they're going to go after the registered owner. And I, I did see one note in there. They were saying the vehicle wasn't properly maintained. That I. I don't know if that was ever a factor. If that, in fact, if it had been a serious factor, I, I, I would have thought it would have been raised uh, in the criminal defense. Uh, I, I know in my own case, I've had uh, serious uh, uh, cases of uh, uh, clients being charged with drinking and driving with, with actual fatalities involved, and, and we could actually demonstrate and actually prove that it wasn't um, that it wasn't that. It, that it was the actual cause of the accident. That the uh, the client may well have been driving, and and but it wasn't that or uh, drinking. But it wasn't that that caused the accident. It was a brake loss, and the vehicle mm-hmm. was defective, and it wasn't the client's fault in that case. So so that can actually happen. But I would have thought that if there was any legs to that, uh, uh, it would have been uh, it, it would have been fully uh, uh, checked in the course of the criminal case. If there is an uh, uh, an amount awarded, like so, well, let's pick twenty five million. Yeah. What would the family actually see of that? What would they which? How much would the family actually see of that? Oh uh, well, um, I 
don't know. I get a feeling you might be asking the question, how much would get uh, um, used for legal fees and 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 related uh, costs of, pro- of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, I I don't know. Uh, and and that would depend a little bit on what basis this is taken. Many uh, civil cases now are taken on contingency fee basis, which basically says, you know, we'll we'll go to court for you, um, uh, and uh, we'll cover the uh, the cost of going to court, and 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 if we and 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 we will only look for a payment if and when there's uh, a judgment and uh, money recovered. In which case, we'll then look for our percentage of uh, ten, fifteen, twenty, whatever. And it can be it's all it's always subject to a review by a court. Court can always look at it, but but so I don't know. It would depend on. On the uh, arrangement that's made with counsel who's taking the case, and whether it's a contingency fee or not, and there'll always be the out-of-pocket cost. But I should think if it ever was a number that big, it would be most of it. I would, I would think. Because this is such a high-profile case, will that influence any of this, or will it? No, it's just the way it is. And here's the uh, average. Here's what we'll get. I, I have a feeling that's uh, less of a pure legal question and more of a, you know, a, a small p political or public perception question. I would like to think that the court is going to be dispassionate, that means not biased or prejudiced in favor or against either party just because it's a high-profile case, that the court is going to um, just make the sorts of uh, decisions and awards that are justified if it was just uh, a a simple fender-bender versus a very high-profile case. Um, The only way that the high-profile element could legitimately work in, though, is this claim for punitive damages. Again, it goes back to that. They're saying, you know, it's not just this is a egregious, uh, very uh, uh, terrible offense, but everybody knows as well. So, yeah. so this is where the court, the civil courts, they're claiming should come up and show how it disapproves of this by registering uh, some damages for punitive. Jeffrey Reed has been with us, Hamilton attorney, talking about the Marco Muzo case. Uh, Muzo defense dis- uh, disputing $25 million in damages in claim. Uh, thank you very much for the time, Jeffrey. Much appreciated. You're always welcome, Scott. Lines thank are you. open. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, the Donald, his own worst enemy, the blog in commentary today. I firmly believe it. He is his own worst enemy. But this campaign, like the U.S. election's over, but the can- the campaign just keeps on going and going and going and going and going and going. Uh, and I don't understand why uh, the uh, president-elect of the free world uh, wastes so much time defending himself to the likes of Meryl Streep or anybody. Um, whether what they have to say is sour grapes or not, his response is worse. Just let it go. Who cares? You got the big stick. You got the big office now. You got the big chair. You've won. Who cares? And this is what I think irritates people of Donald about Donald Trump is when you start treating him like a child, he'll 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 act like a child. And everybody's going, give him a chance, give him a chance, give him a chance. Great. Everybody's willing to give him a chance. Well, they don't really have a choice. But when all you hear is this sort of crap, it's like, get over it, man. Get over it. Like, I believe his ego is bigger than the office itself. You know, when was the last time you heard of any leader responding to what people say on Saturday Night Live or whatever? 
the Globes, the Oscars. He's won. You won. Why is the campaign still on? I don't get it. The U.S. election is long over. Why is the campaign still on? It's unbelievable. And yes, it's unbelievable that the Democrats won't let it go, but it's equally unbelievable that the leader-elect will not let it go by keeping the volleyball in the air and whacking it back across the net. Why? I don't get it. And the blog and commentary today, uh, the Donald, his own worst enemy, honestly, I don't think it's going to be the CIA. I don't think it's going to be the FBI. I don't think it's going to be the media. I don't even think it's going to be Russia or the Democrats. I think it's the Donald that's going to take himself out. I really do. Because of the asinine things that he says, he just leaves himself wide open. It's hilarious. It's it's unbelievable. And how he's convinced everybody that the media is against him when he, in fact, is the media. He's bypassed the media. Who the hell cares what the media says? He's already delivered his message right to your device. Who cares what the media says? Who cares what Russia says? Who cares what Meryl Streep says? Well, apparently the Donald does. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Principal Alyssa PR, Communications, HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily. She's done columns for all those places and with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today? Oh, I'm so fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us on a Monday. Always when it's you. Uh, the U.S. election is over. How long will the campaign last? Probably for the next four years. Will it be a four-year campaign? <laughs> and then you add the other four that were we, we had before. It's, it's actually it's an eight-year campaign. Well, remember, any time a president gets elected, you spend two years trying to govern, and then the next two years trying to get reelected. So really, you do need the full eight to try and get anything done. All right, let's listen carefully. I'm going to, and, and you can put your feet up for five minutes. We're going to play the clip. This is what Meryl Streep had to say Good. on the Golden Globe Awards last night. I love you all, but you'll have to forgive me. I've lost my voice in screaming and lamentation this weekend, and I have lost my mind sometime earlier this year, so I have to read. Um, thank you, Hollywood Foreign Press. Just to pick up on what Hugh Laurie said, you and all of us in this room really belong to the most vilified segments in American society right now. Think about it. Hollywood, foreigners, and the press. <laughs> but who are we? And, and, you know, what is Hollywood anyway? It's just a bunch of people from other places. I was born and raised and educated in the public schools of New Jersey. Viola was born in a sharecropper's cabin in South Carolina, came up in Central Falls, Rhode Island. Sarah Paulson was born in Florida, raised by a single mom in Brooklyn. Sarah Jessica Parker was one of seven or eight kids from Ohio. Amy Adams was born in Vicenza, Veneto, Italy. And Natalie Portman was born in Jerusalem. Where are their birth certificates? <laughs> and the beautiful Ruth Nega, 
was born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, raised in London, in, no, in Ireland, I do believe, and she's here nominated for playing a small town girl from Virginia. Ryan Gosling, like all the nicest people, is Canadian. <laughs> and Dev Patel was born in Kenya, raised in London, and is here for playing an Indian raised in Tasmania. So Hollywood is crawling with outsiders and foreigners. And if we kick them all out, you'll have nothing to watch but football and mixed martial arts, which are not the arts. They gave me three seconds to say this, so. An actor's only job is to enter the lives of people who are different from us and let you feel what that feels like. And there were many, many, many powerful performances this year that did exactly that, breathtaking, compassionate work. But there was one performance this year that stunned me. It, it sank its hooks in my heart, not because it was good. It was, there was nothing good about it, but it was effective and it did its job. It made its intended audience laugh and show their teeth. It was that moment when the person asking to sit in the most respected seat in our country, imitated a disabled reporter, someone he outranked in privilege, power, and the capacity to fight back. It, it kind of broke my heart when I saw it, and I still can't get it out of my head because it wasn't in a movie. It was real life. And this instinct to humiliate, when it's modeled by someone in the public platform, by someone powerful. It filters down into everybody's life because it kind of gives permission for other people to do the same thing. Disrespect invites disrespect. Violence incites violence. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. Okay, go up with that thing. Okay, this brings me to the press. We need the principled press to hold power to account, to, to call them on the carpet, every outrage. That's why, that's why our founders enshrined the press and its freedoms in our Constitution. So I only ask the famously well-heeled Hollywood foreign press and all of us in our community to join me in supporting the Committee to Protect Journalists because we're going to need them going forward, and they'll need us to safeguard the truth. Once, when I was uh, standing on the set one day, whining about something, you know, we were going to work through supper or, or the long hours or whatever, Tommy Lee Jones said to me, isn't it such a privilege, Meryl, just to be an actor? <sighs> yeah, it is, and we have to remind each other of the privilege and the responsibility of the act of empathy. We should all be very proud of the work Hollywood honors here tonight. As my, as my friend, the dear departed Princess Leia said to me once, take your broken heart, make it into art. Thank you for it. All right, there you have it, an uh, emotional speech by uh, Meryl Streep last night at the Golden Globes. Alyssa Freeman is with us, Alyssa PR. Uh, 
how where do we go with this from here? Where do we go from here? You know, I was reading a lot of the commentary and the reaction from Meryl Streep's speech, and <laughs> you know, you you had to know that President-elect Trump was going to tweet about it. And <laughs> aside from all the other tweets that he's mentioned. When you start to question and call Meryl Streep an overrated actress, <laughs> that should essentially tell anybody, no matter what political stripe you are, that this guy is so thin-skinned he can't even think straight. Yeah. You know, Meryl Streep is not overrated. Anybody and everybody have seen her movies. So, you know, when you start digging down and, and really starting to get upset about stuff like that, this is just the tip, just the tip of the iceberg. So I think that the other thing that I read that was kind of interesting was this, is that there were two high-profile naysayers to this um, speech. And he had to know that one of them would be Kellyanne Conway, who was Trump's... Uh, uh, campaign manager and is still part of the transition team and mm -hmm. still acting as spokesperson. And then there was um, Senator John McCain's daughter who said something about it. And the underlying uh, message from both of the these women from representing the Republican side was, you know what, enough. This is the kind of talk that got him elected. Keep talking like this, and he's going to be get he's going to get elected again. Yeah. And I read that, and I thought. Oh, gosh, really? Come on, Kellyanne. Like, you know, is it the same old, same old? And then I sort of sat back and thought, hmm, you know, if that's not a red herring clue as to what to do to change the narrative, then nothing else will be. And to that extent, they're right. I mean, you know, we know that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but I guess, what is it now, over three million votes? And it was the clever playing of the Electoral College that got Trump into office, albeit that's how you have to win. So, you know, that's a moot point. If the narrative is going to be anti-Trump, I think that the Democratic National Committee is going to have to think of what is the narrative going forward once he's in office and who's going to deliver that narrative. Is it going to, the media will continue to report as they see fit. Uh, Breitbart will report in, in favor of Trump, and everybody else will report uh, not in favor of Trump. But who else is going to deliver that narrative to start creating the, um, a resonance with those disaffected Democrats and maybe a sort of wavering on the line Republicans in order to change their mind in the course of the next two years. Now, there's a number of elections coming up in 2018 in the states which could shift the balance of power in the Senate and or the House of Representatives. So really, we're not really looking at a four-year window here. We're looking at a two-year window. Mm -hmm. And depending on how that all plays out and who knows what it, how it will play out at this point, um, 2018 is going to be very telling to see if the populace still supports Trump or not. So it's not the next four years we have to look at, it's the next two years that we have to look at. And we're going to see how both sides, I mean, the Republicans well know that this is going on too, so they're also strategizing. So it will be a battle of the narratives and a battle of the spokesperson to see who and what people will listen to. Uh, speaking of the battle of the narratives, we've certainly heard the whole hacking stories and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and what the agencies, intelligence agencies, have had to say. It appears this weekend, not Donald so much, but his staff 
are alluding to the fact that he is accepting the outcome. So let's go back to the beginning of the election when months before the election even happened, all he would do is hammer away on how the whole system's rigged. He hammered and hammered and hammered the point home. The system's rigged. Crooked Hillary, the system's rigged. Then, of course, that same system awards him president. Now, all of a sudden, it's not rigged, and the Russians are our good friends, uh, despite what the intelligence agencies are saying. Now it's got to the point where, you know what, you got to admit the sky's blue and, 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 and he's starting, well, information's trickling out from his staff that he acknowledges that Russia had played a role. How do you play this? You can't suck and blow at the same time. How does he come out of this saving face? I mean, the only reason he's even saying what he's saying is because if it looks like uh, uh, the Russians were involved in hacking, then it looks like he may not have legitimately won the presidency, I suppose. So uh, how does he handle this moving forward? He, uh, when he gets caught in something, you can't just fabricate a lie out of it. Not this one. Well, here's the thing. I think that we have to look back to see what that CIA report actually said. And the CIA report never concluded either way whether the Russians had affected the election or not. Trump's statement and interpretation... Well, the difference, is, the difference is there's nothing that shows that they had any effect on the tally of the vote. Well, so, however, in, in that, in that respect, But they did sorry. certainly hack in and certainly uh, did start to spread some information. So, in either, you know, they may have not directly uh, been, ava- been uh, uh, responsible for, for the vote itself and the voting machines and changing the actual count, but they certainly were interfering with the election. Yes, but they did not make a conclusive uh, recommendation or a statement based on whether they had or not. But here's my point about that, Scott. Trump put out a statement saying that the CIA report said and cleared the uh, Russia of all um, hacking, and it could have been anybody. Whereas, you know, I was watching uh, Rachel Maddow, and... She said, okay, here's the report for everybody to read. The CIA says this, yet Trump says that. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. It's here. I can read it. So, you know, and you also have to, what I find very interesting, is that a lot of the Republican cognoscenti, let's say, the people in the know, the people who are closest to the throne of power and very powerful Republicans, are more or less, towing the party line, and or staying quite quiet about this. And you made a really good point before I came on, Scott, and that was the media's not going to do it to him. He's going to do it to himself. And it makes me think the Republicans are just waiting till he shoots himself in the foot, which seems inevitable to happen because you can't keep him off Twitter. And let's see if they can, can, because as far as Trump is concerned, a certain set of rules apply to everyone else and a certain set of rules apply to him. But I don't think you can flout the laws that govern the president of the United States and his extent of power. Well, and, and I think it's going to be the business angle that takes him down. I mean, you know, he's insulted uh, pretty much, well, you know, various car companies, uh, carrier, this, that, and the other, and he's affecting stock prices. So how does that change the way these companies operate? Because they're certainly not going to um, avoid themselves of what their mission is. They'll just, you know, rejig the route to go around Donald Trump somehow. Well, I think that what their companies are doing now is they're taking the path of least resistance. 
And from a communications perspective, and I was reading quite about uh, a bit about this last week, they're not trying to fight the battle in public. Somebody wise once told me that you never take on the media or especially an entity that buys ink by the barrel. Yeah. So, you know, when you fight, you know, good communications crisis, crisis communications council says don't fight your battles in public. Well, if you're going to get into a Twitter war with the president-elect and you can see how fast it can escalate and make him angry, that's the last thing they want to do. So they're taking the, these companies are taking the path of least resistance. Oh, you don't want us to build in Mexico? Okay, we'll take that off the table for now. Yeah. Oh, you don't want us just to do this? Okay, we'll take that off the but table But then for now. what? Then what? Well, I think that what they're waiting is to see how it really all plays out once right. you know, he's in power and once the Republican um, Party faithful you know, get a hold of him. I think that the end game for the Republicans is is that, and many people have have predicted this, and we'll see if it comes true. Who knows? It, you know, it's hard to say yes or no to anything these days. That Trump will be impeached by the end of the year, and it may well be his business interests that um, do it to him. Because you know, here's a man who's worked in business for several decades. Uh, you know, self-aggrandizes, tells everybody how successful he is. And if you think that he's just going to be able to divest all that mm. without, you know, taking a phone call or having a secret meeting, like you heard what he said. He said, you want to tell me something or you want to tell a colleague something, don't send it in an email. Come meet me, you know, go meet the person, pick up the phone. Yeah. So obviously that's the way he's going to operate too. Alyssa Freeman's been with us, Principal Alyssa PR. The uh, soap opera continues. Thank you, Alyssa. And thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, all you have to do is watch the national news at night and you see uh, how uh, fentanyl and all the various drugs that are derivatives of these opiates, opioids, uh, how they have affected uh, provinces in Canada, specifically Western provinces, BC and Alberta, seem to be getting hit the hardest, um, and and you know requiring EMS treatment on pretty much a daily basis, keeping those services uh, hopping all the time and and continually trying to keep people alive, basically. Uh, in Ontario, civic leaders are meeting today to try to figure out what to do in the face of the potential uh, uh, potential uh, fentanyl uh, epidemic. It's not quite as bad here, certainly quite as bad in southern Ontario, although there certainly is evidence that it is moving in. Is there anything you can do ahead of time before it gets here and try to... Uh, obviously get ahead of the curve here. To talk more about all of this, scientist at Sunnybrook Medical, or sorry, Sunnybrook Research Institute, uh, David Jerlink is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking the time to join us. What sort of preparation can we make for the onslaught of what could be uh, the same sort of situation we're seeing in British Columbia? Well, it's a complicated topic, and I think the, um, I think the, the thing that really has to be done is to appreciate that this is a, a public health crisis, it's a public health problem, not really a criminal problem per se. And if there was one thing that we could do, I think it would be to focus on helping people who use drugs uh, not die from the use of uh, drugs that they find very hard to stop. And there are various steps that can be taken to that end, but I think that's probably point number one. 
You bring up an interesting point about removing the criminality of this. I remember seeing a, a post on social media. Why are we rewarding people who make bad decisions in their life? This isn't about this isn't about criminals criminals making bad decisions, is it? No, I mean people like everyone makes bad decisions in the course of um, their lives, uh, and there, there's you know when someone who's using drugs and keep in mind these are people who often have very troubled pasts. They've got difficult social circumstances. Some of them have been set down the path of addiction by well-intentioned medical therapy. I mean, these are this uh, affects everybody. Uh, and there's no one listening to your show right now who doesn't know someone who has been touched by this problem and quite possibly uh, who's lost a loved one. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very pervasive problem, but it really at its core isn't a criminal one. Um, so when somebody who is a drug user holds up a store to get money, um, you know, uh, it's obviously a crime, but, but really, when you dig a little bit deeper, that's a person who is in need of help. And very often, it's not somebody who wants to keep using drugs. It's somebody who would welcome the support it uh, requires to, uh, to get out of their problem. Is the problem as big here? Why is it bigger, it seems, out in B.C. than it is here? I don't know yet. Um, it's certainly, per capita, B.C. has got to be up there in uh, maybe the highest jurisdiction in North America in terms of deaths involving uh, fentanyl and other opioids, but it's clearly metastasizing its way eastward across Canada uh, by any objective measure, even though they've not declared an emergency. Alberta has one. Um, I think that we are going to see in the coming year uh, far more deaths in Ontario from fentanyl and carfentanil than, than we expect, and that's why it's important for people to get on top of this early. Where is it coming from? Do we know? Well, uh, there are a variety of drugs here. It's not exclusively a fentanyl problem. I mean, fentanyl is a a drug that is prescribed quite a lot uh, for chronic pain in in the form of patches, and those patches are subject to abuse. But what's really happened over the last three or four years is an explosion in the presence of fentanyl on our streets. That fentanyl is clandestinely produced, much of it in China, um, Does that explain why there's more on the West Coast? It's coming well, it, in it through there. Well, it may well, yeah. So, so the you know, but anyone, I mean, but anyone, you can order this stuff. Yeah. You, you, if you got an internet connection and you got a few thousand dollars, you can order fentanyl or something like it to be sent to your home, uh, and you can turn it. You, you can turn quite a profit if you know what you're doing. So, I, I don't know if it's purely a, uh, sort of a, a West Coast thing on on that basis alone. But but what's what we're seeing is, uh, you know, over the last 20 years or so, doctors have prescribed opioids quite a lot for, for the treatment of chronic pain, and that has helped create a market. Right. Um, it's always there. I mean, there's always been an appetite for opioids, but the market is much larger than it otherwise would have been if we hadn't been so liberal with our prescribing. Are we, are we, are we prescribing less? Have we learned from that? We, we got published a paper on that just a few weeks ago. We, uh, since 2010, prescribing rates in Ontario have declined somewhat. Um, there still remain an awful lot of people on high-dose opioid therapy, and by that I mean opioids in more than 200 milligrams of morphine or equivalent per day. There's an awful lot of people who are still um, at doses like that. Now, those aren't necessarily people with addiction, but they are people who very often are being, whether they realize it or not, harmed by their therapy. There's a lot more to opioids than addiction and overdoses. There's, there are many, many other harms that accompany well-intentioned opioid prescribing for pain. Did this start with doctors over-prescribing? 
Um, I think so. I, th- I think you'll get different answers depending on who you ask. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's always been an, society has always used drugs, um, uh, but the, there's something special about opioids. It makes they're very very hard to stop. Many people who take them. I mean, some people take them and they feel awful. They get itchy. They get stomach upset. They won't take them again. But for many people, opioids impart a tremendous tranquility. I mean, they, they can, they're like the ultimate antidepressant um, in the short term. Uh, but what happens very quickly with the ongoing use of them, medical or uh, recreational, is that people become physically dependent. This happens within days. And so, you know, if you're my patient and I prescribe you opioids for back pain or knee pain, um, you know, and you try after seven days just stopping therapy, you will become unwell. You'll develop opioid withdrawal. And what that does is it, uh, it, it makes it very hard to, to stop. You've got to taper your, your medicines off. But ma- many people feel that, oh, I need to continue my therapy. So when you, were, when you prescribe this stuff, there's a very, 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 very good chance the person will become addicted, even if it is short term. Well, that, I think, I think you've, over, you've overstated it a little bit. One of the tricks that the companies who mar- marketed these drugs used to get us to become so comfortable prescribing them was to tell us the risk of addiction was rare. Less than 1% was often floated. That's not true. But How that, could you be so wrong on something like that? Well, that's a tremendous, well, there's <laughs> a very, very complex answer to that question. I, I, it's, it's a good one because, because these drugs derive from the opium poppy in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I think we were, was, the medical profession was really abdicated its responsibility by not saying, what do you mean? What, it does not make sense that what, less than 1% of people become addicted. It's closer to 10%. So I wouldn't say it's very, very, very likely. Uh, and, but implicit in your, in your question is that the difference between being addicted and being physically dependent on drugs. And this is an important distinction that, that I think your audience needs to hear. Everybody on chronic opioid therapy for back pain or whatever is physically dependent. You try stopping therapy, you get sick. People who are addicted are using drugs in a way that they know harms themselves. Uh, They're they're using despite negative consequences, but that's that's the distinction. So not everybody on chronic opioids is dependent. They're not all addicted, and it's an important distinction. Is there something else we should be using? I mean, if, if I was a doctor, I would assume doctors are, are, are very hesitant to prescribe this, especially to certain per- personalities. Well, that's how it used to be. But, uh, you know, I was a pharmacist from 1990 to 95. And when someone came to the, ho- to the pharmacy with a prescription for morphine, it was usually the case that they had cancer. Uh, and it was quite common and still is to use, cancer, uh, use opioids for cancer pain. Right. But in the mid-90s, we started to get the message that you could use opioids safely and effectively for chronic pain. Um, that's not true. I mean, it, it can be done, but, but we were led to believe that, um, that these were very effective and very safe, and the data to support those two assertions just simply isn't there. It wasn't there at the time. We should have known better, uh, and now we're, now we're paying the price for it. What role does Big Pharma play in this? Huge. Uh, I mean, the, the makers of OxyContin alone have made more than $35 billion, with a B, uh, dollars from that drug uh, since 1995 launch in the U.S. So do they share some of the responsibility here? Well, I think they do. I mean, it's sort of uh, uh, hard to make the case they don't. I mean, in the U.S., in 2007, Purdue Pharma, the company that makes OxyContin, pled guilty to the felony of misleading doctors about the about the product. You know, they admitted saying that the risk of addiction was low, and they admitted that a lot of the claims they made about the utility of the drug uh, just weren't valid. Um, they 
have, you know, and they paid a fine of $600 million. Sounds like a lot of money. It's about 2% of their revenue. Hmm. I do think they have a lot more uh, to do here. Is there a replacement in the works? Is there something that will solve this issue? No. Um, I mean, there are multiple issues here, right? There's the issue of pain, which is an important problem that, you know, we, we need more therapies for pain than we've got. We've got a variety of drugs, and sometimes opioids work, and sometimes anti-inflammatories work. We need new and better drugs for patients with pain. There's no question there. And we need better non-drug therapies and better access to non-drug therapies. But the opioid epidemic that we keep hearing about has really morphed over the last several years. Um, And we need a lot of things. We need supervised drug consumption sites. We need the antidote naloxone all over the place. We need better data than we've got about how many people are dying. Nobody in Canada can tell you how many people in this country have died from opioids uh, in the last 20 years. I think it's between 20 and 30,000. Uh, it's a staggering number when you think about it. Has doctors' opinions changed or, 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 or are they questioning more Big Pharma when they get into a scenario like this and they, you know, they've been told information that perhaps isn't true or certainly exaggerated that these aren't uh, as uh, addictive as, as what uh, people think and then they turn out to be? I mean, how do, how do doctors justify believing Big Pharma, I guess. Well, I mean, put yourself in my shoes in 1997, 1998. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an internist. I, I see pain all the time. Uh, I have limited drug therapies to treat it. Uh, and I go to some fancy talk at a fancy restaurant by a well-intentioned, articulate speaker, and I believe what he or she has told me. Um, and it's a message that I think doctors wanted to hear. I mean, we, when you go to medical school, you do so because you want to help people. Yeah. And we see pain all the time. So um, uh, I think doctors are very skeptical of drug companies, but what they did, you know, it wasn't the companies themselves coming to say, hey, use our drugs. They would involve key opinion leaders, specialists, um, who often were articulate and, and frankly knew what they were doing uh, when it comes to treating pain. Um, but it was a message that doctors wanted to hear, you know, right. to be told that you could use these drugs and you wouldn't have to send people home um, without treatment uh, was a very powerful message if you wanted to make people feel better. Hmm. Safe injection sites, is this the answer or just a Band-Aid? It's part of the answer. Um, People are dying now in BC and Alberta and to a certain extent in Ontario because they don't know what they're using. So when someone is addicted to, say, heroin or someone's buying OxyContin or what they think is OxyContin on the street and really it's loaded with counterfeit fentanyl, um, they're dying because they are getting much more opioid than they need. So, I mean, this is overdose prevention 101. You know, don't use alone. Have somebody available to call for help and resuscitate you with Narcan and use clean needles and don't spread, don't spread HIV and hepatitis C. It just makes sense. Uh, and so I think every large municipality in Canada should have at least one, if not several of these, where people can go and they can use drugs. And it's not just a place to use, I mean, safely. Um, it's a place where, as exemplified by Insight in uh, Vancouver, people can, who want to get out, people who want help, have a ready uh, in. They get the resources they need. So if someone's using, they can actually touch base with somebody who can hook them up with the other drugs that you can use instead to get you off of the more dangerous stuff that's out there. That, that you bring up a valid point. How do we get the millions of people that are addicted to this off it? I mean, you know, everybody's going to have to go through some sort of withdrawal treatment, are they not, if they, uh, if they're, if they have the possibility to get off it and don't it need it? It depends on the patient. So one of the key strategies here is, and one of the reasons why it's so hard to stop using opioids is because of the withdrawals that you alluded to. One of the strategies is to... Um, 
is to replace the dangerous stuff, the heroin, the fentanyl, and so on, with drugs like Suboxone or Methadone, drugs that are they come from a pharmacy, they're pure, they're not laced with fentanyl, right. uh, and they replace the stuff that you've been injecting. You take it as a pill or as a film in your uh, in your mouth, and uh, and that quells the withdrawal symptoms. But that's just part of the treatment. I mean, people need access to supports and 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 that sort of thing because relapse is quite common. It's going to take a lot of counseling, isn't it? Oh yeah, I think it's going to it's uh, it's going to take a lot of count. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. I guess that's what I meant because yeah. again, there's so many layers to this. There are many layers, and you know, if there was one easy fix, it would have already been implemented. Uh, there are many many facets to this. There's the facet involving pain. There's a facet involving addiction. There's a facet involving medical care and how doctors, you know, how we how we treat pain. And you've, you've got 10 minutes with a patient. You know, it's easy to write a prescription. It's much yeah. much harder to not write one. Hmm. Will the problem that exists in Vancouver is it just a matter of time before it's here? Um, it's headed our way. It's, I mean, the drugs, fentanyl and carfentanil, are already here. Yeah. I am hopeful that the lessons that have been learned uh, in BC help us mitigate the harm that befalls Ontarians. Um, what, whether that happens or not, we'll have to see. Dr. David Gerlink has been with us, scientist at Sunnybrook Research Institute, Toronto Civic Leaders meeting today, trying to figure out a way on how to get ahead of the fentanyl battle. David, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.